me, uh, I want to recommend a book to you. Um, it, it's, I just received a copy of this at the Desiring God Pastors Conference a, a few weeks ago. And it's written by a fellow named Mike Wilkerson. Mike is one of the pastors on staff at Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And it's entitled Redemption, Freed by Jesus from the Idols We Worship and the Wounds We Carry. And I've been spending a, a little bit of time each day reading parts of this. I haven't read every single page yet. But this is a goldmine about how God works in our lives to cause us to grow as Christians and um, why we do what we do and how to submit our, our lives to Christ. And uh, I just I can't recommend it enough. I'm, I, I kind of look forward each day of opening up to see what I'm going to, to learn next. But I mention that because it goes along with this passage from Colossians chapter 3. So let me invite you to take a Bible if you'd like to keep one open there while you continue to eat. And turn about halfway through the New Testament to Colossians uh, chapter 3. Just look at the first few verses here this morning, this afternoon. This is uh, the Word of God, Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's as far as we'll read today. Lord willing, I hope to continue on in this passage next week. Uh, I mentioned the missions conference. Through the years, I had the privilege to meet with the missionaries that are here uh, for our conference. And I remember some time ago talking to some missionaries that serve in Australia. And uh, we were sitting around a table. There were several of us, uh, missionaries from other countries, and some of us for here in the U.S. And said, tell us, uh, tell us what your ministry is like in Australia. And they made an interesting comment that I wrote down. It said, it, with the number of years they'd lived there, they said, often Australians just see Christianity as just another set of rules to impose on them. It's almost like uh, they just see Christianity as a set of rules that you're trying to impose on them. Do you ever see your relationship with God that way? Oh, no, just another burden. I hope you don't, but it's tempting to view it as a set of rules. Uh, if, but if you are going to follow Christ and really love Christ through the ups and downs of life, then it will not be because you see Christianity as a set of rules. And the Apostle Paul knew that. Uh, he knew lifestyle changes must flow from the inside out. And that's what's being addressed here in Colossians chapter 3. It's using resurrection language. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Resurrection language. To be raised to life assumes you're dead. It's, it assumes you've, you've died. You can't be raised to life if you're still alive. Now he's referring back to the previous chapter. Chapter 2, verse 12, and let me just read it to you. Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. So that's what he's referencing in this first verse in Colossians 3, baptism. He's not talking so much about water baptism. He's talking about the spiritual reality of being in union with Christ. When you put your faith in Christ as your Redeemer, you came into union with Him. You are buried with Him and raised with Him through your faith by the power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now, baptism for most of us did not cost anything. 
not like our brothers and sisters in other countries, that when you are baptized, you are publicly baptized, as it was in Paul's day, if you were from a pagan background or some other religion, to be baptized would be a public declaration that you had been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were leaving behind your old life and your old lifestyle, and your baptism would signify that. So he says, you've been raised. But he says, you've been raised with Christ. With Christ. Where is Christ? Well, verse 1 tells us, at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of God. The right hand, the place at the right hand is the place of honor and affection. If you are invited to a, a banquet, maybe a very special banquet, and then you're told here, we want you to sit at the right hand of the host, then you would be given the place of honor uh, and affection. And the Bible almost goes out of its way to, and often to tell us where Christ is seated in that exalted position. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Luke 22 says, from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Acts chapter 2 says that Christ was exalted to the right hand of God. Ephesians 1 says, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It points out that place of honor, the right hand of God. So if you, what Paul is saying, if then you have been raised with Christ and seated with him at the right hand of God. What Paul is saying is that those privileges and honor and affection are bestowed not only on God the Son, on Jesus, but they are ours too. John Bunyan years ago, he, he had this little story, this little picture kind of he would tell that every Christian is privileged to possess a magic mirror. And on one side of the mirror, you see your reflection. And when you see that, you see all your sins, and you see all your scars, and you see all your your problems and defects. But on the other side of the mirror, when you turn it over, is the image of Christ with his perfections and his righteousness. Bunyan, the point he was trying to make, is that God sees you, all your sins and your, your defects, He sees you through the image of Christ. All his perfections then are given to you. It means God sees you as precious as his own child. Do you believe that? You don't believe that. I hope you do, but most of us, we we know it here. But when you really stop and think about it, you're saying God loves me with the same affections that he loves his own son. When you are down on yourself, when you feel guilty and inferior, maybe with good reason, (laughs) do you meditate on the truth that God sees you with the righteousness and the, the perfections of Christ? His perfect record is yours. His keeping God's law is credited to you. Now that's what, that's what this is, one of the things this is saying. But note also what it says about Jesus. Where Christ is seated. Seated not only at the right hand, the place of honor, but he's seated at the right hand of God. I've mentioned this before some years ago. 
But I, I found this very encouraging because now it switches from the language of resurrection to the language of the temple. This is temple and priestly sacrificial language. And we, we have to go to the book of Hebrews to be, get clarification because let me read you a verse from Hebrews where that writer described what happened in the old temple. In Hebrews 10, it says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest, speaking there of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Well, why did the priest stand day after day in the ancient tabernacle? Well, here's why. Here's why they stood. There was an annual sacrifice in Israel known as the Passover. And that's when the, uh, the lamb was slain every year in commemoration of the Passover back when the Israelites were, were uh, delivered by the Lord out of Egypt. Now, as Israel matured, every family of the millions of people would slay a lamb on the night of sacrifice. Now, I have a friend that was in Africa a few years ago in Dakar. And he told, I heard him say how, that the Muslim people there still practice an annual event where they sacrifice a lamb. And there are millions of people in that large city. And he just said this, we have no idea how bloody and awful it is when millions of people kill a lamb on the same night. He said the body parts fill the garbage the blood runs and fills the sewers, and he said the stench is overwhelming with the whole city. Now, Israel did that annually for over a thousand years. Over a thousand years, they offered sacrifices at the Passover commemoration. But that wasn't the only sacrifice. There were seasonal sacrifices as well of the first animals that were born. Then there were the first fruit sacrifices, and it just wasn't just seasonal, it was monthly sacrifices for every new moon. And then it wasn't just monthly sacrifices, there were weekly sacrifices on every Sabbath. And then it wasn't just weekly sacrifices, it was daily sacrifices. And it wasn't just daily, there were morning sacrifices, there were evening sacrifices, and then, in addition, there were personal sacrifices for your own personal sin as, as well. So it was annual, it was seasonal, it was monthly, it was weekly, it was daily, it was evening and morning, and it was personal sacrifices, and the priest did not sit down because he did not have time to sit down. Because the sacrifices were being made all of the time. We know from the Bible the very specific articles that were in the temple. They are described in, in minutest detail. The wood that type was that was to be used, what, what type of metal or gold or silver was to be placed on them. We know the materials that were used in the curtains of the tabernacle. We know about the seven-branch candlestick that was to be in the tabernacle. We know about the laver and how big it was which held the water. We know the dimensions. I said tabernacle, I meant temple. We know the dimensions of the temple. We even know what the fringe was made of of the priest robe. But there was one article of furniture that's never described in the ancient temple. What do you think it was? 
No chair. There was no chair. There was no chair because the priest never sat down and the blood, the sacrificial blood, flowed and flowed and flowed. And this went on, as I said, for over a thousand years. Because you have to keep on sacrificing for sin over and over and over and over because our sin doesn't stop until one day the Lamb of God on Calvary was sacrificed and sin was atoned for. And there was no need for any more sacrifices after that. And what's the mark? What's the mark that there was no need for more sacrifices? The priest, Jesus, sat down. It was finished. And you and I, at the right hand of God, we recognize that we are not still standing asking how much we need to sacrifice, how much will be enough, how much doing, how much performing of my own obedience What do I have to accomplish so that God will love me? You can sit down. You can rest in the goodness and the grace of God. The final sacrifice has been made once for all. We cannot add to it. And so now, hopefully we are through with wrestling for God's approval. The high priest has sat down, and he's saying that we've sat down with him. He says in verse 3, we've died. Well, in what sense have we died? We're still very much alive right now. Well, in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. What's the penalty for sin? Romans tells us the wages of sin is what? Death. That's the penalty. That's the payment. And so because of our sin, we must die. But with union with Christ, that we are in union with him, we die the required death that God's law demands. And so the penalty is paid, and sin can never claim us again. And so we have thus died to sin in the same sense of paying its penalty. Now its presence still affects us, and its power still affects us, but it cannot condemn us before God. So if you are raised then, then that which was your past, your sin is gone. And instead of it, you are hidden, it says, with Christ in God, in verse 3. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I have one older sister named Jan. And when we were growing up, she's two years older, and we were growing up, she was always, seemed to be about that much taller than I was until she stopped growing, you know, around the seventh grade. And I kept growing, and so now it's, it's reversed. But during those younger years, she took great advantage of that. And she could run faster, and she could hit harder when I was... And, and we'd get in fights, and, and, and she would run. I'd be chasing her through the house. And where do you think she'd go? She'd get behind my mother. Don't, don't, he, he, he's gonna, don't let him do anything. And then I'd get rebuked, you know. <laughs> she sought safety by hiding behind our mother. Now, here's the righteous wrath of God. It can justly come on any of us for our failure to honor him. And he says, though, you are hidden, hidden with Christ in God. That's what Paul meant, I think, in Galatians when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. But this is not the end. There's more. Verse 4 tells us that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back. 
The trumpets will sound. He will come with great glory. And who will be with him? Well, when he appears, it says we will be with him. Unless, of course, we're alive at that time. But we will be with him. Although the world may not recognize those whose lives are in Christ, God will. And when Christ is revealed at his second coming, we will be revealed with him at the same time. You will appear with him, it says, in glory. You also will appear with him in glory. So whatever you think is the glory of Christ to come, then you will share in that. And John said that when he appears, we shall be like him. So we're not now in the state that we will be in. He's saying that there's glory to come that is not ours yet. So you and I should live with that expectation and anticipation that the greatest is yet ahead, that that state is before us, that greatest state that we can look forward to. So what should be our response? What should be our response? Well, it tells us in verse 1, because of these things, set your hearts on things above. The, the idea of set is to, is to fix your mind on it, reflect on it, let it creep into your brain. To set my mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 2, he uses the same word, set. First he says, set your heart. Now he says, set your mind. Put it in concrete. Let it grip you. Let it grab you. The sense that he's loved you so much and the old things have passed away, it should grip us. I've mentioned this here before, um, I think, but what stood out to me in the early hours when Hurricane Katrina came to shore that Sunday night, when we were all told it was coming, you know, so kind of the whole nation was watching television and for updates because it all said it's headed straight for New Orleans. And then after dark, you know, when they were just beginning to get reports back of the damage and, and which wouldn't come to full fruition for, for days. But I remember, and typically to me, news reporters, especially by the time they get on the, you know, the major networks, they're, they're pretty, I guess they can compartmentalize their emotions pretty, pretty well. I mean, how do, how do you go from talking about these heart-rending scenes to selling some a dishwasher laundry, you know, I mean, just like that. With the, and But there was this reporter, a woman, I, I don't remember which affiliate she was with, but I, I was watching CNN, and she was describing the sounds of people yelling for help from the roofs in the dark. And I remember watching her on live TV when she was trying to maintain her composure and saying, this is what we're seeing, This, you know, it was just dark behind her. So we're just having to go off her description. She said... We, we were hearing people, and then she would break down. So it was terrible, it was terrible. And then she'd regain her composure and say, but this, it would get professional again. And then she'd break down and start crying again, like the awful sounds. I'll never forget these sounds. Now, what happened is the reality had gripped her. And she, she, could, she couldn't even control her emotions. And it would have been awful if you could control your emotions in that. That's what he's saying. When he says, set your mind, it should grip you. God says, think of this. Each day we should think of this. Hell awaited you. Eternity apart from God, but God in his mercy rescued you, resurrected you, raised you, eternally loved me. Think about this, Chip. Think about it when you lie down, when you get up. The glory is yours because of Christ. And Paul is stressing that the reason that living in the heavenlies, that should be the norm. We should think about that all the time, that we've died to the world system. Now, 
If you don't do that, then yes, Christianity will sound like another bunch of rules to impose on you. But if you are gripped by that each day, then the obedience factor is almost incidental. That gives the motivation then to do what comes later about putting to death lust, impurity, evil desire. He gets to the position first and what we ought to think about. Then he deals with actions. Always our thinking should come first. That's why when John, I've appreciated John's Bible studies here so much because he constantly refers back to the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And, and when Paul talked about his conversion, he didn't, he didn't glamorize his life of disobedience that was quite notorious. He talks about God's mercy on him. And he drew off that experience over and over and over again. That motivated him through his entire ministry. I want to... I want to close and, and read to you. Uh, I, I normally don't read something this long. It's a whole paragraph, but it's by Warren Wearsby. And, and I like what he said here. He said, When the nation of Israel came to the border of the promised land, they refused to enter. And because of that unbelief, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That whole generation died, starting with the 20-year-olds, except for Caleb and Joshua, the only two spies who believed God. Well, how were Caleb and Joshua able to get the victory during those 40 difficult years in the wilderness? Their minds and hearts were in Canaan, in the promised land. They knew they had an inheritance coming, and they lived in the light of that inheritance. And then he said, the Queen of England exercises certain powers and privileges because she sits on the throne. The President of the United States has privileges and powers because he sits behind the desk in the Oval Office in the White House. The Christian, the believer, is seated on the throne with Christ. Then we must constantly keep our affection and our attention fixed on the things of heaven through the word and prayer as well as through worship and service. We can only begin to enjoy heaven on earth if we keep our hearts and minds on the heavenlies. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the work that Christ did on our behalf. And we cannot add to it, Lord, even as we cannot take away from it. We dare not try to bring our own performance or good works to add to his, to his work. We thank you that through faith in him that we are seated with him at your right hand and receive all the honor and affection that you give to your son. May our hope and trust and faith be in him and in his work. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.